So I went to um, the Unitarian Church this Sunday. I'm a member of the Unitarian Church where I live in Northampton, Massachusetts, and it's um, a wonderful community there, vibrant community. And so I, I thought I would um, touch base with the UU Church here in Santa Fe. And um, um, they were giving a talk at 8.30 um, in the morning, which um, I thought demanded a great deal of zealousness <laughs> on our parts, but some of us turned up for it. And um, th the talk was titled, um, uh, <laughs> well, something about morality. <laughs> I can't remember now. Um, but it was absolutely fascinating. The woman who gave the talk was um, a Methodist pastoral minister. She was actually switching to the, uh, to the UU. Um, and she gave this talk. And um, what she said is that um, morality was something, and the sense of conscience was something that was dependent on the quality of the caregiving that was given to a young child. And she said that what happens is that when there's a lot of love and presence with a young child, that young child introjects it, takes, takes it in. And the strength that comes from that taking in of love and presence enables the child to hold ambivalence or to hold difficult experiences. But that when a child doesn't have the kind of this kind of ongoing presence and love, when the, uh, the child's boundaries are violated or if there's a lot of anger or violence, then what happens is that the child splits into good and evil, good and bad. That, that there isn't the capacity to hold the, the challenges or the difficulties of life without splitting into good and bad. And so she then um, um, talked about different kinds of religions and the morality underneath them and how, for example, fundamentalist religion is really based on a split of good and evil. And this isn't about, when we think about differences in religions, um, about someone being bad because they're splitting, but, but really it's a reflection of what's happened in the child's life and the kinds of ways the mind subsequently works. And, um, and I thought that was really, it was really interesting to me because in a way it seemed very close to what the Buddha is teaching because he said, one of the deepest freedoms we can come to is our capacity to hold what's difficult without splitting. That in fact, he said that the first noble truth is our capacity to hold sickness and death, being with people we don't like, not being with people that we do like, and he said that particularly, to hold that without suffering. So in a way, he was talking about the same thing. And it just is another way 
really to look at the profound healing that love and presence can give us because his solution as well as this woman who I guess was in the psychotherapeutic field solution was the same. It was about presence and love. So um, in thinking about this, I'm reminded, um, it's so humbling, I'm reminded of um, when I first fell in love. When I, when I, um, when I first, um, when I first fell in love, I was actually the resident teacher at Insight Meditation Society. So um, I, uh, of in my last relationship, so I, w this is, I was, you know, steeped as, as I, as much as I, as I was in the Dharma, and I met my partner. Um, she, I was invited by a friend who took pity on me because I was the resident teacher there, and um, <laughs> and <laughs> um, I was the only lesbian in this large community. And so she thought, oh, I didn't know her, but she thought I'll invite Arena to my birthday party. I felt so appreciative that she did. So we went to Mount Manadnock for the weekend, and, and that's where I met um, Shah. And after a number of months, I remember sitting um, in my room and thinking, do you know, I cannot think of one bad quality that Shah has. She just seemed perfect. She, everything about her seemed beautiful and wonderful. And, and I knew, I knew then that that was the nature of desire that the nature of desire, when we are in a relationship of desiring someone or something, we only see the beautiful qualities of them. Well, this is probably sounds familiar, but after our first big fight, I was like, what did I see in this woman? I can't believe that I'm with her. She is so judgmental, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> so then, of course, I was in aversion which is all I could see was what was wrong. And that is such a beautiful example of splitting. And that, that when we first fall in love and when we first have our big fight, that's a very clear example of splitting that actually happens in our lives all the time. The, the way the Buddha describes the splitting is in the dynamic of desire, desire and aversion. He says that when we're in desire or aversion, we're not seeing the whole truth. She, this woman, talked about it as we weren't capable of holding all of life and its ambivalence. The Buddha says it too. He's so magnificent as a teacher because he could then look in the mind and say, well, what is going on that's creating the splitting? And he said, it's desire and aversion. And that this deep, uh, this capacity to live in life without suffering, to live it in wholeness, comes when we stop believing the desire and the aversion. So then, in, and I know that all of us do this because we have to in our relationships as we bump up with each other. When, when, we, when we find ourselves facing a difficulty, 
we have to stretch past that natural response of just seeing what's all bad. And so Shah and I, like many of you, struggled to find a way through that, that initial despair of thinking, my God, can I do it with this person? She just seems like totally the wrong person for me. In fact, I was just talking with a dear friend the other day, and he said, I don't know, this, this new partner of mine, he's, it might be that he's totally wrong for me. You know, everything is so different. So we have that, we have that invitation to, to stretch beyond that initial reaction. We not only, of course, we not only find ourselves in our personal relationships doing this. Um, one of the beauties of the political realm is that it's, it's so clear. Um, uh, the dynamics are so clear. And I, and I want to read this because I think it's very inspiring to look at what we find ourselves in played out on a political arena. Chile, it must be recalled, constitutes a classic, classic example of a preemptive strike, a set of operations launched well before Salvador Allende set foot in office. Nixon ordered the CIA on September the 15th, 1970, to make the economy scream, quote, and to foment a military move to block Allende from being inaugurated six weeks later in November. <clears throat> the Chilean leader had yet to formulate or authorize a single policy detrimental to US interests. What happens over the next, next six to 10 months will have ramifications far beyond the US-Chilean relations Kissinger predicted in a dire warning to Nixon only 48 hours after Allende actually took office. It will have an effect on what happens in the rest of LA, the developing world, <coughs> our future position in hemisphere, on larger world picture, even affect our own conception of what our role in the world is. As in the distorted threat assessment on Iraq, this was sheer speculation unsupported indeed, contradicted by US intelligence. In August 1970, CIA State and Defense Department analysts had determined that the US had no vital interests within Chile and that the world military balance of power would not be significantly altered if Allende came to power. But an Allende victory would create considerable political and psychological costs, including a definite psychological advance for the Marxist idea. Indeed, the recently declassified records reveal that what really bothered the White House was not what actions a narrow distant country that Kissinger had once disparaged as a dagger point at the heart of Antarctica could take, but the fact that Allende could establish a model for democratic socialist change. As Kissinger informed Nixon on November the 5th, 1970, the example of a successful elected Marxist government, government in Chile would have an impact on 
and even precedent value for other parts of the world, especially Italy. When the President convened his National Security Council the next day to discuss how to hurt Allende and bring him down, he made this point. Our main concern in Chile is the prospect that Allende can consolidate himself and the picture presented to the world will be his success. The article, the article um, goes on to say that the basis of the policy that the United States set for Chile came out of this deep fear that Kissinger had and his, his um, very, very strong persuasion, persuasion of Nixon to go ahead and to try to destabilize the government. And when, when, I thought about what, when, when I thought about Kissinger's fear, his personal fear of what was going on and what the United States did, it actually didn't seem so far away from my own fears. And what happens when I'm scared and the particular ways I try to defend myself or control events out around my fear to deal with my fear. That those kind of strategies that Kissinger and Nixon went ahead with are actually very similar strategies that we play out in our relationships and in our community. And it's, um, it's really, it feels like it's um, really a wonderful investigation for us to look at well, what happens when we find ourselves in the split dynamic, when we find ourselves in a dynamic of splitting that's based on fear, that makes some people in some way all bad and then some people all good, although we know that some of the, the people that are in our good category, you know, our friends, often find, we, uh, find themselves in our bad categories very easily. But that nevertheless, we tend to have in our lives the kind of, this kind of um, subtle camp of the good people, my friends, and the bad people that I don't include as my friends. And, um, and I, I think of, a, of a, um, uh, an experience that I had recently with two of my friends. So I've talked about Shah, and um, this February I mentioned last Tuesday, um, um, our relationship changed and Shah moved out. And um, in the street where we lived, we had a number of quite close friends. And two of these friends, who I will call Ruth and Margie, um, um, were friends that, you know, we uh, invited to our birthday parties and for dinner, and they invited us for dinner at their house. And when Shah and I separated, they hadn't, they hadn't made any move to invite me to dinner or to make any kind of connection. I invited them to my birthday party, and I noticed as I was saying thank you to people and th thank, thanking them for my friendship, that there was some sense of kind of disparagement of them because they hadn't invited me to my birthday party. And I felt badly about it. And so the next day, 
and actually a lot of openness. I went to them and I said, you know, I feel hurt that since Shah and I have split up, you haven't, you haven't um, reached out to me and invited me to dinner. Well, <laughs> I mean, you can imagine that's, that's not a very easy thing to say. And, um, uh, and you know, I was trying to, I was, um, um, trying to model vulnerability and openness and sharing my sadness. And I remember as I talked to them, um, I was crying. And in communicating, I felt, uh, uh, I felt a deep sense of connection with them. Well, they never invited me for dinner. <laughs> the months went by. And, and I, I, you know, I was hanging out with some of the other friends on the street, and I realized that inside of myself, I had placed these two people. I mean, I'm not going to say to you, honestly, they were in my enemy camp, but there was some place where I had sort of shifted them right onto the outskirts. And so I, I decided, I decided in, in, um, in looking at what was going on um, to just really sit with what is it? What, what is happening here that I have relegated these two people who I considered good friends onto the outskirts of the camp of friendship, if not into the camp of the enemy? <laughs> and I realized it was because I hadn't actually acknowledged my fear and my hurt. That I had been really scared when Shara and I split up, that because all of our, or many of our friends were couple friends, that in the splitting I would be left without friends. And that that fear and the hurt that these that this particular couple hadn't actually sustained our friendship, um, I, had, I had not acknowledged because I'd had in my mind, that is ridiculous, Arena. You know, that is a r ridiculous that after all these months you should still feel hurt. You know, it's not like you don't have other friends. I have plenty of friends. It's not like I don't have a busy social life. I have a busy social life. So I saw that I had all these concepts inside of myself which didn't allow myself to actually feel the sadness and the fear. And that when I did, when I could really say, honey, it's totally fine that you're feeling hurt. Not only is it fine, I actually want to be present for myself in this hurt and this sadness. I want to honor it and to allow it to be there as long as it naturally needs to be there. In that intention and that sort of invitation to come back over and over again to that place of hurt, I started to feel this healing take place, like, oh, oh, I just wasn't present for the fear. And I saw again the incredible beauty of these teachings and how they, how they invite us to a coming together of that split in giving us a path, 
in inviting us to be present for where we are and how we are at any moment. And the incredible gift of that, because Kissinger didn't have the blessings that we have of sitting in a community whose deepest vision is a healing of the split of enemy camps. The Dharma gives us that vision and gives us not only that vision, but this detailed practice of how to do it. And that detailed practice is so beautiful because it, it doesn't demand that we be different than we are. It doesn't demand, oh, Arena, you should be past feeling hurt that your friends didn't invite you to dinner. It doesn't demand that. Rather, it says, how can I honor that? How can I say, oh, this is, this is who I am. I'm, I am in this time, in this age, and in the place I, of where I find myself hurt. And it's okay. And not only is it okay, but can I deeply honor my life and myself by honoring that hurt and that fear? And as, as we and as I attempt to do that, what happens is that in that friendliness to those feelings, the sense of separation falls away. And so I actually, as I could feel that opening to myself, I could also feel those two coming away from that enemy camp and the boundaries more into my circle of friends. I don't actually understand what's going on for them, but it becomes less important as I'm able to befriend my own feelings. What that means, what that, what that means, this vision of friendship and healing, is that we're allowing not only our own emotional imperfections, but we're actually allowing others to be where they are as well and to be in our camp of friendship. The reality of the first law, the first noble truth, is that it is unsatisfactory. It is unsatisfactory. We know that already in our relationships. We know that in our bodies. We know that all around us, that it is deeply unsatisfactory. That doesn't mean there isn't profound joy and blessings in our life. There is. What it does mean is that with the profound blessings and joys in our life, there are also the places of failure and weakness. For each one of us here, right now, living inside of us are beautiful strengths, magnificent blessings, and also places that haven't healed yet places of reactivity, places of delusion. This capacity to heal the split is the capacity to hold both the joys and blessings and the places that haven't healed yet, the places of weakness, the places of hurt. There is um, 
it's one of my f one of my favorite readings, um, which is um, uh, from Eduardo Galliano. The Sorbonne confers the title of Doctor Honoris Causa on Darcy Ribeiro. He accepts, he says, on the merit of his failures. Darcy has failed as an anthropologist because the Indians of Brazil are still being annihilated. He has failed as rector of the university because the reality he wanted it to transform proved obdurate. He has failed as minister of education in a country where illiteracy never stops multiplying. He has failed as a member of a government that tried and failed either to make agrarian reform or to control the cannibalistic habits of foreign capital. He has failed as a writer who dreamed of forbidding history to repeat itself. These are his failures. These are his dignities. And I love that because this invitation is not about success, but rather it is the attempt, it is the honest attempt to look at our deepest intention and to say, I will try, I will try to hold this fear with love. I might not be able to do it, I might fail, over and over and over again, but I know that is my path and I will make that attempt. And I can therefore say that even though I'm not 100% healed in this hurt in relationship to my two friends, that I can have dignity in that part that has still failed because I have aligned myself with that deepest intention to try. <laughs> I um, also had the great blessing to go and receive the teachings of um, um, Kendra Rinpoche. Uh, the Shambhala Center invited her down from Colorado. And um, she too was uh, spent quite a lot of time, in fact, all her time talking about community. She talked about it particularly from the perspective of the, um, the practice of the Bodhisattva vow. And she said um, something that um, really struck me in relationship to this opening of our heart. She said, um, <coughs> You know, we, uh, so this is their tradition, we spend all these hours um, practicing and, and in, in their tradition, um, prostrations and mantras, thousands and thousands of hours, we could say we spend all these hours um, um, with our breath, with our bodies, with the four foundations of mindfulness. And she says, we think that's the practice, but if someone from our Sangha comes and tells us what they think about us, we think that isn't the practice. She said, maybe we should check up on our motivation and see how much we really want freedom, how much we really want to be liberated from the constrictions of 
gain and loss. And she talked a lot about gain and loss, how much of the time, how we make our decisions has to do with what we think we will gain and how much we try to avoid what we think we will lose. And she talked about our speech and the sorts of little deceptions that we sometimes not only tell each other but ourselves because we want to gain something, you know, or we want to avoid losing something. And, um, and she said, um, maybe it's time we challenge this deep, this deep thrust towards gain and loss, this, this deep defensiveness and protectiveness, and really reconnected with what our motivation is in this life. Is our motivation to free ourselves? Is that what we most want? And if it is, can we allow that inspiration to serve us in our openness to hearing what we have to say to each other? And then I think too about the blessing of the Dharma. I don't know about you, but if I was to die on my way home tonight, I would feel in, in some way really contented that I had found my path. That out of uh, uh, including, excluding the preciousness of life that I'm alive, I don't think there's anything in my life more precious than having come to the Dharma. It is for me just this deepest treasure and, um, and blessing and has so profoundly transformed my life from a life of quite incredible suffering to one that has so much more um, connection and um, love and compassion and joy. And um, I, I can think of no greater blessing than the Dharma. And I think, and I think of this, and I think of the story of the Buddha as he was um, becoming more and more popular and more and more people were coming to him and ordaining with him. And um, how his cousin, do you remember what his cousin's name was? I forgot. David Dutta. How his cousin, um, who had um, practiced the psychic powers um, to, 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 as a, with the wrong motivation to become powerful in the Sangha, got increasingly jealous. And I can just imagine him saying, you know, that Buddha, he thinks he's so great, you know, with all these people coming around. What about me? Look at me. I have all these psychic powers. He had great psychic powers from concentration, you know. And, and you can just imagine him getting more and more contracted and finally thinking, I'm I'm, I'm going to get rid of the Buddha. I should be the one that leads the Sangha. And so he planned it, and he went on top of, I think it was Vulture's Peak, and he got this huge boulder, and he rolled it down to kill the Buddha. And as you know, it didn't kill the Buddha. It just got, um, quite painfully, th th uh, hit the ankle of the Buddha. 
And then, so people were, people were outraged. I mean, this was a, a, a terrible deed that was being performed. And they said to the Buddha, get rid of him. Get rid of him. Expel him from the Sangha. And the Buddha said, no. And I understand why the Buddha said no. Because in a world like, just like, in a world where it's so easy to misinterpret our fear, like Kissinger, like us, but like those who don't have the Dharma, and to bring about such profound suffering, how can we expel anyone from the Sangha? Because here is the preciousness, even if we are lousy students, here is the preciousness of the grounds that can begin to turn us around. Is there anything more precious than having access to these teachings? And the Buddha said, no, I can't expel him, even though he tried to rent this deep tear into the fabric of the Sangha. So Kandro Rinpoche ended her, her talk by saying, think for thousands of lifetimes the incredible effort it has taken each one of us to come to the Dharma, that effort to cultivate the wisdom and the love enough that we can hear the calling of the Dharma and know that it's true and say, wow, that feels like that might be healing for me. That feels true. I want to go and hear some more. Oh, I want to practice. Yeah, that feels transforming and liberating to me. She said, think, think of the many, many lifetimes of practice and think of the profundity of our actions in relationship to someone who wants to come to the Dharma, and whether we support the striking of a match to light the flame of the Dharma in the conditions of that person's life, or if we're doing something that is actually turning that person away from the Sangha and from the Dharma. And she said, think about it. When the desire to be honest is greater than the desire to be good or bad, then the terrific power of one's voices will become clear, and behind the voice, the old forgotten fear will come up, the fear of being excluded from life. And behind the fear, the pain, the pain of not being loved, and behind this pain of loneliness, the deepest and most profound and most hidden of all human desires, the desire to love and to give oneself in love and to be part of the living stream we call the human family. And the moment love is discovered, 
hatred, all hatred disappears. So let's take a moment and sit together. would like to end uh, by reading the five precepts. Um, if you feel moved to join me, please do in uh, silence. Aware of the violence in the world and the power of nonviolent resistance, I stand in the presence of the ancestors, the earth, and future generations and vow to cultivate the compassion that seeks to protect each living being. Aware of the poverty and greed in the world and of the intrinsic abundance of the earth, I stand in the presence of the ancestors, the earth and future generations and vow to cultivate the simplicity, gratitude and generosity that has no limits. Aware of the abuse and lovelessness in the world and of the healing that is made possible when we open to love, I stand in the presence of the ancestors, the earth and future generations and vow to cultivate respect for the beauty and erotic power of our bodies. Aware of the falsehood and deception in the world and of the power of living and speaking the truth, I stand in the presence of the ancestors, the earth and future generations and vow to cultivate the ability to listen and clarity and integrity in all I communicate by my words and actions. Aware of the contamination of the world and of my responsibility for life as it manifests through me. I stand in the presence of the ancestors, the earth and future generations and vow to cultivate discernment and care in what I take into my body and mind. Thank you so much for your listening and your presence.
Any responses or questions? So, I don't know if it's to the, um, um, are you contemplating? Are you contemplating what's going on? Uh-huh. No questions? Could you say more about sublimating a, a, a little bit, what you mean by it? I think it's a process where people just repress hmm. the aversion and attraction. Yeah, I think that people do do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, uh, and the pain is really great, it becomes more difficult to do that. One way that I could describe my practice has been um, um, sort of cultivating the energies that will help strengthen my heart and mind so that I can open more to the pain and suffering that is part of the world as well as the joy. And that, and that a lot of my practice has been about opening and then backing off and resting or cultivating the factors so that I can come back again and open up some more 
and backing off and opening up. And that's been the movement because um, it, it, it takes a tremendous equanimity. That's one way to talk about healing the split. It takes a tremendous equanimity to hold everything in a heart of love and wisdom without reaction, without going into aversion or desire. And that that's really the path that we're on. And the, the importance, of, the importance of, of talking about it is recognizing that's the path we're on. But then for each of us individually, the path is a little different of when we open and when we back off of what things we cultivate to strengthen ourselves so that we can open more and more and heal that split. But um, for most of us, it's developmental. There are a few rare beings who spontaneously open and uh, into a profound enlightenment, and that's that. There were quite a few stories in the Buddha's time of that kind of spontaneous, deep enlightenment where someone became an arahant and that was it. That the opening, the, the opening was profound and everything was held. But for most of us, that's not true. It's a developmental path. And so, it's, um, so we each find our own limit in how much we can open to before the mind becomes heavy and despairing and, um, and caught. Um, or frustrated, and then we back off and, and nurture the qualities that sustain us and strengthen us so that we can open up again. So, um, I, uh, so this is a, a very long response to what you're saying about the Buddha. It, it felt like one of the things that was so incredible about the Buddha is that he'd worked for so many lifetimes that in the lifetime of of, of, of uh, um, in his lifetime, he had the strength to do the final and very big opening. His mind, you know, that that he had that strength from from many many years of uh, lifetimes of previous practice to do that final opening. And yes, I think he he felt deeply the pain of of um, and he said. Uh, why, what is my life about? Is it just about the sickness, age, and death? Is that what I have to look forward to? A and, and feeling deeply the pain of that. Or is there something more? And, and, and feeling this deep calling to say, I want to see if there's anything more than that. And, and, and that was his search. And yes, I think it was an acknowledgement of that deep suffering that comes from not opening. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.